let me just pray briefly and then we'll um, I will read. Father, thank you for your word, your word which is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And uh, we want to hear your voice this morning speaking through your word. So would our hearts and minds be open and attentive to you. And we would we hear your voice and remember the things that you say. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So, Mark's Gospel. If you're, if you're not familiar with, with Mark's Gospel, if you've got it open in front of you, you will, you will see that the verses that we're going to read in a moment, verses 9 to 20, um, are not originally part of Mark's Gospel. And if you look at verses, um, verses 1 to 8... Uh, Mark's gospel ends very abruptly and very suddenly. So Mark begins to write about the, the resurrection account when the Sabbath was over. Mary Magdalene, Mother Mary, the mother of jo- James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Uh, and then they, uh, uh, they, they look into the tomb. There's a young man dressed in white. He says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He's risen, he's not here. See the place where they laid him. Uh, That little picture, if you weren't here last Sunday, that picture is from the inside of the garden tomb in Jerusalem. So that might be the place where they laid him. Uh, And then Mark's gospel ends, verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. So it's a bit... It's kind of, it's, and scholars are, don't quite know why it, Mark's gospel ends at this point. Because when you take the rest of Mark's gospel, it's highly unlikely that he would have ended his gospel in, in this place. Mark would have had more that he wanted to say and more that he wanted to write. So um, uh, N.T. Wright, who's probably the foremost New Testament scholar in the world at the moment, if not, uh, if not one of them. His view is that the original ending of Mark's gospel got lost. Because it's obviously written on parchment, it's written on scrolls. And so his, his kind of best estimation is that the end of the scroll got lost, fell off. And uh, we don't actually have Mark's original ending. Just um, interestingly, who was Mark? Uh, Mark's gospel was the the earliest one that we have. It was the first gospel to be written. And scholars tend to think that it's it's basically the Apostle Peter's account. uh, Because Peter comes across in the gospel very badly. (laughs) Because he's always putting his foot in it and making mistakes. So, So scholars' estimation is that it's basically Peter's account given to Mark. And there's a little... There's just a little interesting uh, verse in, uh, if you just sort of flick back to chapter 14, verse 51, there's this little detail which seems completely irrelevant. Uh, in Mark 14, verse 51, we just read, a young man, so this is at Jesus' arrest, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. It's the only reference we have to this, to this young man is he was following Jesus uh, and then he fled naked. Uh, but scholars, again, think that perhaps this is Mark just putting in a little, a little kind, of, uh, kind of editorial detail to say that was me and I was there. So 
Mark's is the earliest gospel. When Matthew and Luke wrote their gospels, they had a copy of Mark in front of them because they basically copied chunks of Mark, the, you know, word for word. And, um, and other bits they take from Mark and they kind of add a few editorial flourishes and stuff. So it's the earliest gospel, possibly based on the Apostle Peter's first-hand account, and Mark was there as well. And Mark's intention is to, to tell us the good news, to tell us that there is a new Lord in town who is not Caesar. And, uh, and so the, the gospel it ends very abruptly and too abruptly. And so at some point... Uh, various other endings have been ended, added to Mark's gospel. There's, a, there's an even shorter ending than verses 9 to 20, which is literally two sentences. And the language is very, very unlike Mark. It's a very generic, they all lived happily ever after kind of thing. Uh, but then there's these verses which are added. And the interesting thing is that possibly this longer ending to Mark, verses 9 to 20, may have been added up to two centuries after the gospel was written. So it gives us an interesting insight into not just what happened on that first Easter day, but also on how the church had reflected and the experience of the church for a long time after the gospel was finished. So, and and when, as we read through it, you will, you will, if you know the other gospels, you'll know that There's quite a lot of the ending of Luke's gospel in here and there's bits of John's gospel in here because whoever whoever compiled it was very familiar with the other gospels and basically condenses a lot of stuff into this. So let me me actually read it so that would be helpful, wouldn't it? Mark 16 verse 9. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterwards, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So that's the, the account that we have. We've got the first eight verses, which are a mark, and then verses 9 to 20, which are the addition. And the first thing to, just to, to note is just how unbelievable the resurrection was and how literally no one was expecting it and no one, no one wanted to believe it. They had no... Part of the problem for us, kind of being this side of the resurrection and 2,000 years into Christian history is it's not a surprise to us that Jesus rose from the dead. 
uh, were expecting it. But for the people who were, who were there 2,000 years ago, they had no, they just had no understanding, they had no framework to fit this into. So Jesus went to great lengths to try and explain to his disciples that he was going to die and rise again. And it just goes in one ear and out the other because they, there's literally no, no precedent. So the Jews had an expectation that at the end of time, there would be a general resurrection, that everyone would be raised and then there would be a judgment. But the idea that a single individual would die and be raised, it just didn't exist in the culture. It doesn't exist in sort of Greco-Roman culture. So Jesus tries to explain to them and they just they don't get it. They just don't get it. And what's very, very clear is that when Mary and the others, when they go to the tomb on that first Easter Sunday, they're not going because they think they're going to see a risen Jesus. Uh, just the, the beginning of Mark 16, uh, you know, uh, they bring spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus's body. That's their plan. Jesus is dead, uh, but we want to do what we can. So we want to go and anoint his body. And the problem that they're thinking about is there's a big stone over the entrance to the tomb. How are we going to move the stone to get to his body? That's their, you know, that's their issue. How are we actually going to get there? They're not expecting to see Jesus alive. And then they, they enter the tomb. They see this angel, this young man. Uh, he says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. And they just don't get it. Trembling and bewildered. They went out and fled from the tomb. It just, it's not like, oh, Jesus said he's going to come back to life. Let's go and, let's go and welcome him back. And so when, in the longer ending, verse 9 uh, Jesus rises early on the first day. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene. And again, um, just interesting that it's women who were the first witnesses. Uh, just a little uh, you know, evidence that this is not an invented account. Because if you were inventing the account, you would have had Peter first on the scene. You'd have had John first on the scene. You'd have had men first on the scene. Because 2,000 years ago, the, the testimony of a woman was not acceptable in a court of Law, you wouldn't believe a woman if she just said it. So if you're inventing the account, the account, you've had Peter and John in there, but it's not. It's the women who are the first evangelists, the first witnesses. And the men just don't believe it. They don't believe it. Uh, you know, uh, verse 11, she, she, Mary told them, I've seen Jesus alive. They didn't believe it. Verse 12 and 13, which is a condensation of uh, the journey to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24 that we looked at a little while ago. Um, they returned and reported that they didn't believe them either. And then Jesus appears and rebukes them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe. Believing in the resurrection is not easy. It seems impossible. It seems incredible. When we are sharing our faith with friends and neighbours and we talk about the resurrection of Jesus... Lots of people simply don't believe it. It just seems incredible. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. The interesting thing, to skip ahead to verse 20, is something happens. They go from being, you know, stubbornly refusing to believe in the resurrection to verse 20. The disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So very quickly, they go from this place of, absolute disbelief in the resurrection to telling everyone about the resurrection telling everyone about the good news and seeing the lord work with them and confirm their preaching by the signs that accompanied it and what is it that 
you know, in the end, that convinces them that the resurrection is true, is that they have this encounter with Jesus. Jesus appears to them, and they actually have this encounter with the living Jesus. But it takes them a while. Even when they're with him, it takes them a while to be convinced that it's true. To begin with, they think they're seeing a ghost. If you, uh, you know, if you look at the end of uh, at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus appears, and they're terrified, thinking they've seen a ghost. He says, "Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have." Uh, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it, they still didn't believe it. He's standing there right in front of them and they're still struggling to believe it. Uh, so he says, do you have anything to here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. At the end of John's gospel, we have the account of Thomas, who is one of the disciples. He's not there the first time Jesus appears to the disciples, he says, I won't believe it until I can put my hand in the wound in his side and my fingers in the holes in his hands and his feet. And then the second, when Jesus appears again a week later, Thomas is, uh, is there. So believing in the resurrection is not, uh, it's kind of not an easy thing to do. Even when you've got Jesus standing right in front of you, it was a difficult thing to believe. But once you get your head around it, then everything changes. Everything changes. It's, I've so often seen over the years people who have struggled to understand the gospel, struggled to believe that Jesus is alive, and then have this encounter with him, this encounter with the living Jesus. And suddenly everything changes because if Jesus is alive, then everything changes. I, we had our um, a breakout group at, down at Blacklands on Tuesday evening and we were you know we were talking about the the resurrection and there was a lovely lady there who was who was obviously you know it was quite a new thing thinking about the fact that Jesus was was alive and I and I said I often do that when you think about the Christian faith the most important thing to make a decision about is whether or not you can believe that the resurrection is true because if the resurrection isn't true well then you can forget the whole thing none of it makes sense But if you can believe that Jesus rose from the dead, well, then everything else slots in around that. And the things that Jesus said become true if he defeated death. That's the transforming thing. So thinking about our, you know, preaching everywhere, thinking about, um, you know, sharing the good news of Jesus with those around us. Thinking about, well, how do we how do we share our faith? It's so much more than just conveying information. Uh, so often we, we think in our evangelism, it's about, well, it's, it's telling people about Jesus. It's telling people about, well, who Jesus was, who Jesus is. He is, the, he is the son of God. He died on a cross. He died for our sins. He died to do something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And he rose from the death, from death. He defeated death. He defeated sin. That's, that is the gospel. That is what we convey. But actually evangelism is so much more than that because... Actually, what we want is for people to meet Jesus, because it's when you meet Jesus that everything else slots in around that. And uh, verses 15, where Jesus speaks to them, and and this is the message, isn't it? Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. 
Uh, interesting uh, little um, comparison when you think back to the end of Matthew's Gospel and the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel. There's a, it's a slightly it's slightly different. So at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus speaks to his uh, the disciples. He says, um, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make." disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the commission at the end of Matthew's gospel is basically to to share the gospel with people and to invite people into the kingdom. And that is that, you know, that that's the gospel. That's what we uh, that's what we're wanting to do. Slightly different in Mark, in this longer ending to Mark's gospel, that he says, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Preach the good news to all creation. So there's, there's a slightly different kind of twist to it, if you like, which reminds us that God is in the business not simply of uh, plucking souls from earth and plonking them in heaven. He actually has a care for the whole of creation. Uh, God's intention is to restore and to renew everything that has been lost, the, the fall, the uh, the, the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't just a devastating crisis for humanity because it affected our hearts and our souls so that when we're born into this world, we're actually born carrying a spiritual death that only Jesus can raise us from. It wasn't just that the fall affected our relationship with God. It was that it affected the whole of creation. Uh, the whole of the created world is affected. I was just... Um, uh, uh, sorry, I'm going off down a little cul-de-sac. But I was just, uh, I was just reading this uh, a book this week um, about Darwin because uh, uh, Darwin was raised as a as a Christian. His wife was a Christian to the end of her days, and she was very troubled by uh, the conclusions that Darwin came to. But one of the reasons I was reading this week that Darwin decided that there couldn't be a beneficent creator. Uh, was because of the uh, the life cycle of the parasitic wasp. Uh, you've never heard of the parasitic eyebrows go the parasitic wasp. I've never heard of the parasitic wasp, but uh, the parasitic wasp is a parasite because it basically um, uh, it, it's it's sort of reproductive cycle involves uh, taking over a caterpillar and laying its <coughs> using the caterpillar as the host to grow its babies, which um, Darwin looked at that and thought. That's a really horrible thing to happen. Poor little caterpillar. Why would a wasp do that? And so that was one of the things that made him think, well, how could a, how could a good God create that? That didn't add up in his, in his mind. And it was one of the things that led him on that journey to think that there isn't a God behind um, all of this. But when you, when you think about the fact that the, uh, what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, it didn't just affect their relationship with God, it affected the whole, of, the whole of creation. So there are all sorts of things that happen in the created world that you look at and think, I'm not, how? but it's all affected by the fall. So maybe the parasitic wasp is, I don't know. But uh, how did we get there? We've kind of gone down a cul-de-sac, haven't we? And now we need to try and get... <laughs> Just try and do a U-turn and get back out. But um, that was just to make the point that the whole of creation is affected by the fall. And God's heart is for the whole of creation to be restored. Which is why we're looking forward to the fact that Jesus is coming back. That's the direction of travel. Jesus is coming back. 
uh, and is bringing the saints with him because then the world will be recreated as it was originally created and we will spend eternity in the most beautiful created world that's beyond our imagination to conceive. But that's God's heart. Uh, gosh, how did we get into all of that? That was just reverse, wasn't it? Never mind. Anyway, verse 16, let's move on from the parasitic wasp. Uh, whoever believes and is baptised will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Just remind, this is serious. What we are about is serious. It's very stark, isn't it? Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. It's, it is serious. The gospel is, is good news because there's bad news that needs to be overcome. Uh, if you remember John 3.16, you know, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And if you continue to read into verses 17 and 18, John goes on to say, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world says we're already condemned because our relationship with God is broken. Jesus came into the world to rescue us. We're already condemned without Jesus. Jesus doesn't come to condemn us. He comes to rescue us. But if we don't respond, if we don't turn, then we remain in that place of our relationship with God being broken. The gospel is serious. That's why we need to preach everywhere in whatever way we can to whoever we can. Because the gospel is about life and death and we have those around us who are destined to uh, an, an eternity of condemnation. That's the reality of the gospel. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to preach about it. It's much more comfortable to preach about how much God loves us. But the reality is uh, there's, there's a lost eternity for those who don't respond to the love that God shows them. And we have to be as bold in proclaiming that part of the gospel as we are in proclaiming the fact that God loves us. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. This is not, um, this, this is not written so that we can go, oh, I've got, I can go and stick my hand in a nest of snakes and I'll be all right. Or I can, I can go home and drink some bleach and I'll be fine. This is not that. This is all about the fact that because of the resurrection, we already inhabit a different kingdom. We already inhabit a different kingdom where things, things happen differently and different forces are at play. When Jesus was on trial, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. He's always teaching people about the kingdom of God. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says to the apostles, I confer on you a kingdom. Uh, Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, uh, reminds us that, um, that we've been transported from one kingdom to another. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. This is what Jesus has done. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness... And brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, When we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we become citizens of a new kingdom. Citizens of the kingdom of God. And in that kingdom, things happen differently. Different things are at play. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says to his disciples that he has given them all the authority of heaven. 
Well, if we're given all the authority of heaven, then we can drive out demons where they exist and where they are oppressing people because we have the authority of Jesus Christ. They will speak in new tongues. God gives us, as one of our spiritual gifts, a heavenly language that allows us to pray in a different way. It allows us to express our love for God in a different way. It allows us to pray in situations and circumstances where we can't find the words. It's a gift that he gives to us. There may be circumstances. I was just um, reading this and reflecting on uh, Paul uh, when he's on his way to Rome and he gets shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And uh, we read this. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hands, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea because they've been shipwrecked, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. So he's kind of, kind of solved one problem and then got him into another problem. He's like, no, no, I'm not a god. It's just like, no, but I live in a different kingdom now. I live in a different kingdom where God's purposes are being weighed out, uh, played out. So it's not just, uh, you know, oh, you find a deadly snake, stick it on your hand because you'll be all right. It's no, God is working his plans and purposes out. God, God's purpose for Paul was to get him to Rome. That was the plan. So anything that got in the way of that plan, God's kingdom has an answer. So, so Paul is bitten by the viper and it doesn't affect him at all because God's plan is to get him to Rome. If God's plan had been for him to die on Malta, he'd have been bitten by the viper and, you know, turns. It's just we live in a different kingdom. So we should have an expectation that we will, you know, we'll see things differently. And I'm sure, you know, all of us that know the Lord Jesus, we can look back on our lives and we can, we can see times and occasions where things have not worked out in the way that they should have done. That there's been some kind of miraculous intervention. There's been some kind of, of provision. I remember years ago talking to, talking to a friend who was... Uh, they, were, they were in a car and they were, driving over a, they were driving over a bridge. It was on a blind bend. And as they were about to drive over the bridge, they, just, they heard this command to put on their uh, seatbelt. And they hadn't been wearing their seatbelt. And as they were about to drive over the bridge, they just heard this command, put your seatbelt on, uh, which they did. And they went over the bridge, round the corner and into a head-on crash. And if they hadn't been wearing their seatbelt, they probably would have been killed instantly. Because God's plan and purpose was not for them to die in that moment. He had other things for them to do. So it's just, it's, it's getting used to the idea that as, as the children of God, we already inhabit his kingdom. And in that kingdom, we should have an expectation that we see things work differently. They'll place their hands on sick people and they will get well. And I think we, we just, we need to be, we need to encourage one another in, in these things and encourage one another to live differently, to live in the kingdom of God, to have an expectation that as we, as we preach the good news of Jesus, um, he will kind of come in behind the preaching of his word and show people his kingdom and introduce himself. 
And that's why we get to verse 20. The disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So the disciples go out. That's the first thing. And, um, you know, as, as a church community, that's the thing that we always want to, you know, encourage each other in and encourage each other to be bold. That, that we go out. We go out. We don't just come here because we like meeting with our friends and this is a lovely place to be on a, a Sunday and we have nice coffee and, well, yeah. Uh, so we meet here on a Sunday with our friends and... Um, <laughs> And, uh, and uh, because we like being together, this is the place where we build each other up and encourage one another. But then we go out and we preach everywhere. And as I was saying a few minutes ago, you know, we do that in all sorts of different ways. Just through having conversations, through sharing our lives, through acts of kindness. We preach everywhere. And as we're bold in doing that, Jesus is with us. That's the wonderful thing. We're never on our own. Jesus is with us. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's the most, um, the most common thing that God says throughout the Bible is, I will be with you. How can he be with us? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. So Jesus is with us. So, so when I'm you know, sat with my, with my barber and we're kind of having conversations and I'm still kind of feeling a bit, oh, should I say something? You know, should I be bold? It's, I, I just remember, actually, well, Jesus is here. Jesus is here, so I'm going, to be, I'm going to be bold. I'm going to take a risk. And I know that if I do my part, um, Jesus will do his part. If I preach the gospel, if I'm bold, Jesus will come in by his spirit and touch that person's heart and just warm their heart towards him. So we go out, we preach everywhere. The Lord works with us and will confirm his word by the signs that accompany it. So as we, you know, as we think about what Jesus has done for us, as we think about the resurrection and the difference that makes to us, that actually we don't just know about Jesus, uh, we know him, we know him, we love him, he's, he's with us, we're never on our own. And that can encourage us to be bold, knowing that as we are, as we are bold, he will be with us, he will work with us, and he will do more than we might dare to imagine. He'll do things beyond our imagination if we're faithful in preaching his word. So uh, next week, we're going to be back in Ezekiel. So, <laughs> so we've got a week to be cheery because next week we're going to be back in Ezekiel and we're back in repentance and all of that. But the good news is God is at work. God has spoken There's always hope and there's always hope because of the resurrection. And that's what we're about. So let's let's be bold in this new term. Let's encourage one another. Let's be praying for our friends, those people that we're regularly in contact with and regularly having conversations with. Just, you know, if you haven't done it yet, just make a list of five people, five and just every day just say, Lord, would you bless them? Give me an opportunity to have conversation with them. Start to work in their hearts and soften their hearts so that when I speak about you, my words will land on good soil. Just make a list, five people, start praying for them and uh, see what God will do. So let's pray and I'm going to hand back to Joel in a moment. 
Father, thank you, thank you so much that, that Mark only sat down to write his gospel because Jesus was alive. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, he wouldn't have written his gospel and we wouldn't be here this morning. But he wrote his gospel because you're alive. And uh, we are here in order that we might go and preach everywhere. And Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, equip us, anoint us, and embolden us to preach everywhere in whatever way we're gifted to do, so that we may see your kingdom come. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.